Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. Call or text Carl now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's Carl. Good afternoon and welcome to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. Now deep into our 29th year here together, Money Talk is a broadcast about the world of financial and investment planning where you always determine our agenda by calling or texting 512-836-0590. You may listen online right now at newsradioklbj.com, or you can go there at your convenience and listen to broadcasts of previous shows. You can also go to SoundCloud, a free app, and do the same thing. And this Thursday, after the news is 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. It's a great idea to call or text early. Give me the ample opportunity to do my best to answer your questions. 512-836-0590. Here's a text that just came in. Carl, could you please comment on, number one, during the current geopolitical uncertainty so far, there hasn't been a flight to safety in U.S. Treasury bonds as in similar times past. What are your thoughts? I think... Well, first of all, you're right, because what this uh, person is suggesting is that when there's a real problem, like, say, 9-11, this seems a stupid way to call it a problem, when there's a real geopolitical event like 9-11, frequently investors look to reduce risk in their portfolios and to add safety, and one of the ways in which they frequently do that is to buy treasuries, causing their prices to rise and their yields to fall. And that has not occurred this time. My sense is that it's because of the Fed policy of keeping rates higher for longer uh, and the bond market coming to terms with the fact that we may not have a recession uh, causing the Fed to lower rates sooner or we may have a soft landing. But about everything that I read uh, from sources I consider reliable uh, is that if we're going to have a recession, it keeps getting postponed. And as the bond market and bond investors kind of put that into their thinking uh, that rates could be higher for longer, you see rates going up and bond prices going down. So there really has not been a flight to quality. Now, uh, certainly in a flight to safety as well. It's certainly possible if the war in Gaza spreads uh, and we see more uh, countries involved that there could be a flight to safety and a flight to quality. But my sense is that the U.S. economic outlook and the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve is what's driving the bond market currently. Secondly, you said, if someone is holding a current allocation of 6% in gold, would current and potential future geopolitical uncertainty warrant increasing that allocation a little, maybe the 8%? In, in my view, the answer is yes. Um, and not necessarily just the geopolitical, but uh, long-term listeners know that for many, many years, I've been a skeptic of gold. But in the last few years, uh, I've changed my mind. And I think having a 7 or 8% allocation through an exchange-traded fund like IAU or GLD, as examples, uh, is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. So increasing your allocation a bit seems like a reasonable thing to me. 
You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's another one. Let's see if this is... Here we go. I have a question about the mechanics of retirement planning. If I want to build a portfolio of individual dividend-paying and hopefully dividend-growing stocks... Uh, a reason over a reasonably long time frame with the goal of them ultimately producing retirement income, should I do so in my taxable account or my IRA? Here's my concern. If I were to do so in my tax-advantaged account, the time, time comes to take a required minimum distributions, can I transfer those securities to my regular trading account, or would I have to sell them and repurchase them, thereby reducing my share count and lowering my dividend yield on cost, having to accept the yield at the time. Um, interesting question. Personally, I think asset allocation really is the single biggest consideration. And so if you put dividend-paying stocks in your IRA uh, and nothing else, that's an all-out all equity allocation, then you're going to want to put other kinds of assets in your taxable account. Also, dividend-paying stocks, as you would probably know, tend to be, um, shall we say, more mature companies, uh, and they go in and out of favor. And as a consequence, perhaps in a rising rate environment where bonds become competitive with stocks, you tend to underperform. Certainly, that's the case so far this year. Utilities, which are dividend-paying stocks, uh, are among the worst performers year-to-date as the bond market has gone down and interest rates have gone up. So my concern is uh, that you overweight one segment of the equity market, and you can have long periods of time when non-dividend-paying equities really drive returns. Certainly the bull market that began in 1995 and ended in March of 2000 was really a growth stock stock market. And names like Dell Computer and Cisco Systems that paid little or no dividends delivered the massive portion of return. And if you were sitting in dividend-paying stocks and you were overweighted in that area, you have less money today because of that. So I'd be, I'd be concerned about that. I don't, you know, I think uh, to your second part, sure, you're going, first of all, you can transfer securities in kind. So you don't have to worry about that. But you're, you're going to get, you know, you have that gain in there. It comes out, you can think about your cost basis. But the fact is that because you buy these in your tax-deferred IRA account, when you come out with with the required minimum distribution and you do an in-kind transfer into your taxable account, your cost basis is the value when it goes into your taxable account. So if you bought the stock for 20 and it's $30 when it goes into your taxable account, your cost basis is $30. It's not what you paid for it in your IRA. You're listening to Money Talk. Time for me to take a break. We have all of our lines available. No text additionally now. So let's not hear me bloviate. Let's call or text 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ. 
590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Hi, Carl. Do you feel Morningstar ratings are accurate? <sighs> That's an interesting one. I, I would say this. The, the star ratings, and I think you're probably discussing that or thinking about that, I don't find them terribly helpful. I think the information, the uh, if you go and look at the calendar year returns and you look at where the returns fall in terms of the category uh, and also the expense ratio, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I, I buy an annual subscription. It's not very expensive. Uh, and you get, and then they don't follow every mutual fund, but if they happen to follow a mutual fund, they'll also write an analysis of it. Um, so I, I like that information. Uh, I like to look at calendar year returns uh, and look at how they did in various market conditions. Um, but I think the stars, the three, four, five stars, can can sometimes be can throw you off uh, because they tend to emphasize more recent behavior, more recent returns. So I think I'm, I would say I'm neutral. I think if I were researching a fund and it say had a two star, yeah, that would get my attention. But if I research a fund and it, I think it's going to fit my asset allocation and it's a three star, that's not an immediate negative as far, as far as I'm concerned. You also ask, what's an acceptable management fee for a managed mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund? So on the exchange-traded fund side, there are two kinds. There are the passive and there are active. The passive ones, which tend to mirror indexes, say the S&P 500, for example, are dirt cheap. Uh, and so you would expect to pay not only less than 10 basis points, but somewhere between 5 and 10 basis points. Uh, for an equity one. So I think that's that's fine. I think there are some uh, others that are actively managed, and they're going to be less expensive than an actively managed opened-in 40-act fund, but they're going to be higher than a passive uh, index fund, for example. So I would say when you start talking about a traditional mutual fund that's actively managed, most uh, people would think something less than 1% for an equity fund and uh, perhaps under 0.5% for a fixed income actively managed fund. Now, there are some strategies, and long-term listeners know I talk about these, that people call alternative strategies like event-driven strategies and uh, trend following. They're just more expensive. Uh, they're more than 1%. They're less than 2%, but they're more than 1%. And so when you think about the, uh, an appropriate expense ratio, you have to put it within context and compare apples to apples. And I think that's the way to look at that. Thanks for your text. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text. Carl, 
I still haven't pulled the trigger on medium-term, four- to seven-year duration bonds. Okay. <laughs> so far, your cowardice has paid off. Can you provide the pros and cons of owning a bond fund as opposed to an actual bond? How will both react when the Fed starts lowering the Fed funds rate? Assuming I buy in now when 10 years at 4.80% yield per your live broadcast as during this UT game, so I'll listen to the podcast. How rude. <laughs> um, gosh, great question. Let's, let's, do the, let's argue it both ways. So the argument for owning individual bonds is it really is the only investment you can make where you know exactly what your cash flow is going to be and you know exactly what your future value is going to be. You can't say that about stocks. You can't say that about real estate, commodities. You can't say that about mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. So there's something to be said for certainty. The challenge is several-fold. One, uh, generally individual uh, investors uh, have to realize that buying 10 or 15 or 25 or $50,000 of a bond, you may be subject to some fairly significant transaction costs that are not evident because uh, there's a markup, and if you want to sell them, there's a markdown. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, that... If you were to own uh, an ETF or you were to own an actively managed, if the ETF is passive, like, say, the Barclays AG, symbol AGG is the ETF from iShares, um, they're going to do everything to match the duration of the, Bar the Bloomberg AG. I said Barclay, that's the old name, the Bloomberg AG. It's going to be inexpensive. And what I like about it from a portfolio management standpoint is you could say, okay, I've got a 25% allocation to bonds, even though you have, haven't pulled the trigger. And at some point you decide to pull the trigger and you want to go from 25% to 30%. That's so easy to do when you're using an ETF. And it's not necessarily easy to do unless you have an extremely large multi-million dollar portfolio with individual bonds. Now let's talk about actively managed 40-act open-end mutual funds that are bond funds. Frankly, when it comes to fixed income, this is my preference because I've had the opportunity over the last 45 years to spend time with bond managers and to sit actually at a bond trading desk. It's really, really interesting, or at least I think it's really interesting. And they have the ability to move the portfolio they have the ability to look for areas that, that look cheap to them. So I'm going to give you two examples. All right. Now, these I am not making a recommendation. So you take a big bond manager like PIMCO, Pacific Investment Management Company. One of the tenets of their approach is they get everybody in a room periodically and they think about the outlook for the global economy and the outlook for the U.S. economy. And then they make some decisions about how they want to structure their fixed income portfolio. Now, they have guardrails. If it's an intermediate core bond fund, uh, then they have to stay within certain areas. But let's just say that they could say, we think the, the five-year area is cheap relative to the seven-year area, 
and they can they can do that. By the same token, they could say, well, this area is not this part of the yield curve is now expensive. Let's sell that and buy a different part of the yield curve. And they can add, in my experience, they can add value. And as a consequence, that probably the most extreme example I ever saw of that was uh, in 2008. So uh, Lehman Brothers failed, as I recall, in September of 2007, 2007. And we started the housing crisis and the what everyone now calls the GFC, the global financial crisis. And one of the prominent bond managers at the time was a man named Bill Gross. I mean, he's still alive, but he managed a fund called PIMCO Total Return. And he had been writing about the fact that they were headquartered in Southern California and that people in Southern California were using their homes as ATM machines, taking equity out of their home to take a trip or buy a boat or buy a new car or whatever, and that it had reached pretty silly levels. One of the key managers at that firm even sold his house in Southern California because he said these values are dumb. And so he positioned the portfolio much more heavily into treasuries. Well, then, we all know what happened. Uh, The stock market collapsed. The high-yield bond market collapsed. The real estate investment trust market collapsed. Commodities collapsed. And his fund was up over 4% because he actively managed it. I learned a lesson at that time that uh, good active managers – can do that. Now you take, I'm just using two big companies and I'm not recommending, you take JP Morgan's core bond fund as opposed to say something that PIMCO would do. JP Morgan doesn't take a top-down approach and try to think about what the outlook is and then position the portfolio. They're much more interested, those managers are much more interested in trying to find cheap bonds. So I think you can do it passively. The largest bond fund is Vanguard's BND, and it seeks to match the overall bond market, the Bloomberg Ag. So on a year-to-date basis through yesterday, AGG has a return of minus 2.91, BND minus 2.75, that JP Morgan minus 2.34. Those are pretty darn close together. So it's, I, I'm, I just feel that active management gives you a bit more benefit than passive in a passive ETF. The other thing I would say is, for most investors, if you if you agree with the way I see things, and you certainly live without the certainty of future value of individual bonds, but I like bond funds. The other thing I would say is, will they? Bo- you asked if they both react the same way when the Fed starts lowering the Fed funds rate. The answer is yes, if you're individual bonds match the duration of the uh, of the bond fund and you're comparing apples to apples they probably will act similarly but to take advantage of that total return uh, you have to sell the bonds well maybe you don't want to sell the bonds because you want that future value well over time what you know what's going to happen is the bonds are going to return to par so you have to think about that as well. You're listening to Money Talk. It's time for me to take a break. We're at the bottom of the hour. I have all my lines available as well as no new text. So call or text 512-836-0590 and stick around for the second half of Money Talk. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. 
Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon for another 25 minutes. When you have a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Also, you may listen online at newsradioklbj.com or go there at your convenience and download previous broadcasts. You may also go to SoundCloud and listen to those broadcasts as well. And then this Thursday after the news at 6 p.m., we will rebroadcast today's show. 512-836-0590. Marianne, you're on the air. How may I help? Hi, Carl. Hi. Um, I just uh, have been busy doing other things, when usually I'm more on top of what's going on with markets, <laughs> etc. So I would <laughs> appreciate, maybe others as well, kind of what's going on right now. Um, you know, we've, we've had some changes in world events and so forth. Do you have an assessment? And uh, we kind of look at, I don't like to think of just the, to the end of the year, but right. going forward, right. just some thoughts on right. that as you observe. Right. Yeah. Well, there's no question that in since the summer that stocks have really struggled and interest rates have risen. So when you look, the market, the U.S. equity market more or less peaked in July. So when you look on a year-to-date basis, the S&P, I'm just using the SPY exchange-traded funds, up 11.37. The Nasdaq's up a whole bunch, 25.66. But those are down from where they were in the in the more or less the middle of the year. I think that ha- is occurring not because of uh, geopolitical events, but rather as investors are trying to understand the impact of Federal Reserve monetary policy on the economy. Because in theory, and presumably in fact, rising interest rates cause a slowing of business activity. I mean, if you're in business and you borrow money, uh, it's a lot more expensive today. If uh, you are a commercial real estate uh, owner and you had a five-year uh, loan and you and you're, it's coming due, boy, you've got a challenge because your interest rate you're going to pay is a lot more. I was reading in today's Wall Street Journal that uh, uh, private equity firms that invest in companies, the idea is to grow them and then sell them, that the, they like to use a lot of debt uh, to leverage, so to speak, to improve their returns. And recently, private equity firms are having to put more cash in than they originally did because their lenders are skeptical about how successful the businesses are going to be, and they're going to demand more equity. And so I think what you're seeing is this uh, uncertainty, and there's an old phrase about markets abhorring uncertainty. We've seen rates move up appreciably when you get the 10-year at 5%, uh, when it, you know a few years ago it was under 2%. That's a big deal. And uh, as a consequence of that, I think this last few months where we've seen bond prices fall and stock prices fall is investors trying to understand, uh, are we going to have a recession? Uh, and if we are, how deep is that recession going to be? Because 
uh, everything you read, and I know you read a lot, Federal Reserve policy tends to work with the lag. I mean, you don't take a multi-trillion dollar economy, make a change in interest rates, and think you're going to have an immediate impact. But the stop, the economy has stayed strong, I think, more than people thought. There was a, a comment in today's Barron's that uh, Bloomberg News said uh, a year ago that we the chances of us being in a recession within a year were 100%. Obviously, we're not in a recession. When you look at the employment numbers, the unemployment numbers, uh, and so I think investors are skeptical that this can continue, and so I think that's causing weakness in the stock market. I think the competition from the bond market, when you can make 5% in secure treasury securities and you're not sure about the economy, you're seeing trillions of dollars flow into money market funds. I happen to think for long-term investors that's probably going to be a mistake, but people are saying I can get safety, liquidity in 5% as opposed to risk in stocks and bonds. So and I think there's got to be some clarity on the economy. Now along comes the Hamas invasion of Israel, and that throws in another level of uncertainty. And that combined with Ukraine – the way the Chinese are saber-rattling over Taiwan. I mean, the world's a, a pretty scary place, and uh, there's probably some nervousness as well. And then when you take the look at bonds and the interest rate available, say, on the 10-year, and you look at the price-earnings ratios as a way of valuation of stocks, you can make a case that stocks are are somewhere between fully valued and expensive. And when you tie in this uncertainty with valuation for equities, you get this kind of situation where there's, there's just negative sentiment, and uh, I think probably for good reason. And unless until there's some clarity on Fed policy, on the outlook for the economy, and frankly, the geopolitical situation, we can anticipate a, a difficult time. Now, the sentiment has gotten quite negative recently. It wouldn't be surprising. You know, generally when people get really, really nervous and anxious, you tend to have a rally. And you can, I can just feel that level of anxiety uh, in, in investor sentiment. So we may have some strength here. But there's just a lot of there's just a lot of clouds on the horizon, Marianne. So I think we just have to be cautious in our asset allocation, uh, and like everyone else, uh, have some wait for some clarity about the outlook. So that's my view. Well, that was very helpful, Carl. Thank you. you um, in terms of uh, segments of the market, and yeah. um, you know, um, you know, we've had the growth stocks, and right, we, we sure have. We, we have yeah. so many uh, tech stocks that have yes. done so well, et cetera. Yes. Where are we on that, do you think? Yeah, I, it's <laughs> it's remarkable. Uh, I was going to talk about this if I had the opportunity this afternoon. I pulled this out of today's Wall Street Journal. And it's to your very point, it's what we call the narrow leadership in the equity market. So I'm just here in my notes. The S&P 500 is up more than 20% since October of 2022. Now, as I said, it peaked in July. Only two-thirds of S&P stocks have risen, okay? Out of 500, two-thirds have risen. The Russell Microcap, which are the 1,500 smallest market cap stocks, 
is actually down during that period, and the Russell 2000, which are small cap stocks, is unchanged, and one half of the gain, and the S&P's up 11 plus, one half of the gain year to date in the S&P comes from just eight stocks. Eight stocks. And so if you have, if you've been passive with some of your money and you have used market capitalization like the S&P 500 or the total stock market, you've been pleased because you're up 10 to 11 to 12 percent. But if you're an individual stock owner or you like to, to diversify, own some small and some mid cap, it's been really tough. I mean, I, I follow a small cap value fund that I have great confidence in, and it's ranked 37th year to date, with one being the best and 100 the worst. So it's, it's done just fine this year, and through yesterday, its total return is minus 0.19%. And I also follow, on a passive basis, the international market. Uh, and the Vanguard XUS exchange-traded fund, uh, year-to-date through yesterday, is up 1.7%. I mean, that tells you how tough it's been to make money. And in the third quarter, particularly, there was, you know, if you were not in certain segments, uh, you had a difficult quarter. So, uh Keeping some money in that market cap waiting uh, has been the thing to do. Uh, and, and frankly, having international diversification, which I firmly believe in, and I've firmly been mistaken, has not been the thing to do. But I get nervous about, say, owning the QQQ or the ONEQ up 25%. Uh, I'm, I'm more comfortable in the, tank, the total stock market or the S&P 500. But it's unclear to me that, that where leadership comes from, you know, going forward. So having some money in those passive larger indexes feels like the right thing to do for me for part of my equity allocation. Do you know you saved me a great deal of homework? And uh... <laughs> good. <laughs> All right, thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. Good for me. You're listening to Money Talk. We're down to our last quarter hour. If you've been thinking of calling or texting, you are running out of time. 512-836-0590. I'll be back. You're listening to Money Talk with Carl Stewart on News Radio KLBJ, 590 AM and 99.7 FM. Enjoy the podcast on newsradioklbj.com. Now, here's Carl. Welcome back to Money Talk. I'm Carl Stewart, and you're listening to News Radio KLBJ. Thanks for listening. We're here this afternoon for another 10 or 11 minutes. If you've got a question, call or text 512-836-0590. Here's a text that just came in. Carl, any thoughts on the Austin housing market? I have a second home in Austin with full equity invested. I would like to sell. However, my timing is terrible. Rent, wait, or try to sell now. Wow. Well, of course, I'm not an expert on the Austin real estate market. I do get the monthly data, and I'm doing this from memory now. Through September in Austin, the median price per square foot year over year was down. I want to say I think it was somewhere 11, 12, or 13%, which is significant. Now, of course, that follows a year in which it was up, I don't know, over 30%, maybe 35%. So, uh, you know, over a two-year period, 
uh, it's up, but right now it's down from where it was a year ago. Uh, and of course, I think it's fair to say that uh, real estate is probably as interest sensitive uh, an asset class as there is because most real estate owners uh, use borrowed money, uh, whether that's a mortgage for a personal residence uh, or it's a loan for a commercial property. Um, the land and or the, re- the, the building is a collateral, uh, and it's a very interest-sensitive uh, security, if you will, and investment. And what we see across the country is now that mortgage rates uh, are above 7%, that housing transaction activity is really come down. People who have 3% mortgages, unless they're forced sellers because they've got to move across the state or across the country for job reasons, are going to stay put. So you have the supply of, of used homes is contracting. And then because fewer people qualify for mortgages, uh, if you're a new home builder, you have got to be very careful about not ending up with a bunch of inventory because the people who could afford to buy your houses two years ago can't buy them now. So all of that has nothing to do with the interest rates, have nothing to do with Austin. But everything that Chairman Powell has said indicates that the Federal Reserve is not going to lower interest rates for the foreseeable future. Now, how long is that? Some people think in the second half of 2024, we'll have enough softness in the economy and enough reduction in inflation that we'll have the ability to have lower interest rates. Well, that may well be the case. That would be a wonderful thing for you because in spite of all this, we still have net inflows, net immigration. In fact, I read that in 2022, the number one place for people leaving California was Texas. And you see this in Florida as well. And so it looks to me like if I weren't a forced seller and I thought that the uh, economy in Texas would continue to prosper, and I frankly think it will, then I'd probably be patient. If you don't have to, if you're not a forced seller, you're going to have a lower interest rate environment in the future. And that will mean more qualified buyers for your property. Uh, I think there's enough demand in Austin. You're not going to have a huge drop-off in in the rental rate that you're going to get. So I would rent uh, and wait uh, because I think that, uh, that that would be the prudent thing to do. You're listening to Money Talk on News Radio KLBJ. Call or text 512-836-0590. I just got one. Here we go. Carl, I'm retired and make approximately $1,900 per month from my retirement annuity. I want to invest 15000 I want to invest, ah, the text is cutting off the zeros. I want to invest $150,000 to $175,000. What's the safest thing to invest in? I was looking at CDs or fixed annuities. Okay, so... Um, Interest rates have risen sharply, and so certificates of deposit and fixed annuities look much more attractive today than they have in a long time. Interest rates will not stay elevated forever. They may go higher from here, but the odds are at some point they're going to go lower. So there's no appreciation potential 
in the fixed annuity, and there's no appreciation potential uh, in CDs. But you use the term safe. So I'm going to take that to mean the nominal value because what happens over time is that your you what happens is that your investment looks the same but frankly after inflation uh, it's not the same i see i have a call and i'm sorry not to finish your t uh, text answer but my rule is i take callers first michael you're on the air how may i help i had some questions about energy stocks yeah, part of yeah. A big part of my portfolio is in oil stocks and oil exploration. And although the oil prices are going up, it, the oil stocks aren't necessarily keeping pace with the price of oil. Right. Right. And you're wondering, and, you're, and what is your question about that, should Michael? Hold, should I hold on to those and wait? Or? Yeah. I think that... Um, I don't see anything on the horizon from a supply standpoint that indicates that we're going to have a big increase in global supply for oil. Natural gas is off 30-plus percent on a year-to-date basis. Um, the Saudis clearly have decided that it's not to their benefit to let oil go above $100 a barrel and stay there. So they have the ability to equal it, to, to if you will, equilibrate the global oil supply. Uh, they make plenty of money at the, at the current level. Uh, domestically, the uh, energy drillers, the companies, there's a, there's a fairly high number of rigs uh, that are not working. And a lot of the big players are not aggressive even at these prices because they've gotten the message that the shareholders want dividends. They either want dividends or share buybacks, so you're not getting the kind of drilling and exploration activity that you might have predicted with oil at these prices. So um, I think that the likelihood that we're going to have uh, a recession-caused sharp drop in oil prices is fairly low. And so I think we're probably in some form of stasis in here with the price of oil. But what the stock market's telling you is that the longer-term outlook is not particularly exciting. Uh, you would, you know, in the old days uh, with Hamas invading Israel, you would expect oil prices to spike, and they have not. That's a pretty good indication, in my view, uh, that they're going to be mediocre performers. You've had huge volatility where one year they're the worst, energy is the worst performing sector of the S&P 500, followed by the next year it's the best performing. So if you like oil stocks, I think you should reduce your position. There's no reason that I can see that you should eliminate it, but this you, you, you get yourself on a heck of a roller coaster by by overweighting one you know one industry, I mean I've seen mutual funds that decided that biotechnology stocks were the place to be, and they're they're top ten percentile one year and bottom ten percentile the next. That in my view is that kind of risk is just I'm, I'm, I don't want to take that kind of risk because you could be out of favor for years in oil stocks while consumer stocks do better or technology stocks do better or whatever. So I cannot make a case that's bullish for the outlook for oil stocks. I'd keep some, but I would reduce my position if I were in your situation, Michael. Okay. And, and a lot of my question was predicated on the fact that I don't really think that the 
electric car movement is going in as fast as what they predicted. Oh, I agree. C- completely, completely agree. Completely agree. But, I, but I, I don't think that's a sufficient reason to overweight the oil stocks personally. Okay, great. Bet. Okay, thanks for calling. You're listening to Money Talk. We're down to our last minute. So I would say to the person who wanted safety, do a CD ladder. Don't put everything in one maturity. Put it in, take your, put it in four-year maturities, one, two, three, and four. Every year, 25% of the money comes back, and you can reinvest. Great broadcast this afternoon. I want to thank Garrett for doing his usual terrific job. Thank you for listening and remind you that next Saturday, after the news at 4, be sure and tune in to Money Talk. Carl Stewart is an investment advisor representative of Carl Stewart Investment Advisor Incorporated. 